This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, what happened to the Kentucky Colonels? Hi, welcome to Over and Back. I'm Jason, and my special guest today is Adam Johnson of Basketball Pantheon. Adam, welcome back to the show, sir. Uh, how's it going, Jason? Good to be back. So we're going to dig into the Kentucky Colonels, uh, one of the... Uh, really the most accomplished franchises in ABA history, especially if you consider regular season accomplishments. They had three of the eight best SRS seasons in ABA history. Uh, they were very first, uh, sixth and eighth during their uh, time there, which is pretty impressive. They actually had the most regular season wins in ABA history, which considering the Pacers had all those really good teams and won those three championships, it's a little bit of a surprise to me, but they... Um, managed to uh, pull that off and they're one of the you know really the one of the most accomplished teams uh franchises that don't exist at, anymore at all yeah they really are and um there's only one season of the night they were, they were you know obviously in the aba for all nine seasons of the aba and didn't didn't move you know no major you know scandals it was very much a, a stable franchise for the entire nine years which is you know basically only them and the pacers so um, yeah, very impressive. And that 72 season obviously was phenomenal until the playoffs. But yeah, the only losing season they had was the very first season. So, yeah, it was it was a, a marquee franchise of that ABA for sure. Yeah. And they did a, a few wacky things in their early days. I mean, remember the ABA.com and Loose Balls has some has some good stuff there. But they're originally owned by uh, Joseph and Mamie Gregory and they their mascot was Ziggy, a their famous uh, show dog who they took everywhere, had a special seat for home games and was very much a part of their big uh, marketing material. Apparently would go to some of the uh, owners meetings as well. So, so Ziggy was a, a bit of a character as far as the uh, early days, uh, one of those uh, uh, quaint promotional th- things that the ABA was known for. Yeah, I guess I guess I should have called this in. Nothing crazy in terms of ABA. Obviously, <laughs> yes. obviously to, to the NBA, that would be a very odd thing to have a show dog that you carry around everywhere. But um, yeah, in terms of the ABA, no, no major, major scandals. But no, yeah, the pictures of the show dog are hilarious. It's like I can't imagine, you know, Mark Cuban walking in with with this kind of dog at to, to some sort of owner's meeting. It'd be absolutely ridiculous. But yes. 
Um, and uh, the other no, kind of notable odd thing they did in, um, I think it was the 69 season, um, they had um, Penny Ann Early, a female jockey. She actually appeared in a game for the Colonels, uh, inbounded the ball, and then Kentucky immediately called a timeout or moved her from the game Uh uh, Coach uh, Gene Rhodes was not happy about the uh, whole situation, but was forced into uh, doing that. Uh, they got some attention for that, but that was obviously the kind of uh, maybe the kind of attention that you don't necessarily want to do. They, they do say that all publicity is good publicity, but that it was a little bit of a you know making the game a bit of a farce just to uh, do something that's kind of notable. That, that's like continental basketball uh, association level type stuff. Right. Yeah. Pretty embarrassing. Um... I mean, because it's, it's one thing if it would have been, like, a great female basketball player of the time. It's like, oh, you give someone some shine that probably deserves it. But a jockey, it just is, yeah, completely a publicity stunt. And I can totally understand from a coach's perspective why that would anger a coach. But that's, I guess, where the ABA was in those days. Yeah. Um, and they did, um, as you mentioned, they had some success. Um early on in the first three seasons, four seasons of the ABA. And most of that was um, carried by uh, Louis Dampier and Daryl Carrier, who were two uh, early three-point pioneers. Rich coined them the original Splash Brothers. Um, they uh, During the first three seasons together, they combined to score more than 40, 50 points a game. And, um, and they really were a a tandem that required their opponents to really construct special defenses just to contain their law, their long range shooting. We went through some of this in our three point, our three pointers episode, but they really were, um, you, you know, both among the early pioneers of a three pointer and really were you know, not shooting it in, you know, modern Steph Curry standards, but we're sh- certainly shooting it at a rate that, you know, the NBA wouldn't really reach until the early to mid nineties. Right, and and I believe uh, uh, Dampier led the league in three-point shooting once, and it was, I think, about 38 39%. So it's like, you know, leading the league at 39%. That's kind of sounds kind of crazy today's standards, but at the time, that was pretty accurate. Um, and, and yeah, he absolutely used it. He was an all-star every year of the of the franchise history except one. Um, really, really impressive from, from Louis Dampier. But, yeah, Carrier also early on, all-star first couple of years. And actually, I mean, really, that's just that starting the second season, they – were a good team without any sort of big man, any sort of real help. It was really a guard dominated team. And um, that's pretty impressive in those, in those early days to be able to do that without any sort of big presence. Yeah. And the other notable thing is that they were trying to, uh, they went after Louisville star Wes Unselt coming out of college, but he ended up going to the bullets instead. And that would have been uh, obviously an opportunity to upgrade the franchise and get, you know, one of the great big men of all time, but uh, it didn't work out for the Colonels. However, they were able to sign another great uh, Kentucky big man in uh, 1971, uh, actually, in 1970, heading into the 71 season, it was uh, Dan Issel who had played for the University of Kentucky and signed there before the NBA draft. Didn't really even consider the uh, the NBA. He he was very much uh, you know wanted to be part of the ABA, wanted to stay in Kentucky. Thought the league was an exciting thing and uh, really was the you know the next foundational piece for them to have really great success for the next five six seasons. Yeah, it, it, that's the move that pretty much legitimized the franchise. And it was the same year um, that they moved from the Louisville Convention Center to Freedom Hall, which is kind of the legendary you know, University of Louisville stadium that was used for years and years and years. And yeah, it was it was really impressive reading about Dan Issel that it was there really was no thought of NBA. It was like, I'm going to make this thing where I'm from great. And that's pretty impressive um, at that time when, you know, the pay probably would have been much better 
in the NBA, but that is also the same year that they changed colors. They were a green, kind of a greenish color early on, and then those last six years were obviously changed to what we know as kind of the red, white, and blue. But uh, but yeah, he completely legitimized the franchise. Won Rookie of the Year, the, his rookie year, and uh, led the league in scoring. Yeah, actually co-rookie of the year with Charlie Scott. But right, yes, right, he, he led the right. league in uh, with twenty nine point nine points per game, almost thirty, and uh, was definitely you know, considered a good shooter for his size. Great at running the floor, was versatile and being able to go between power forward and center at a time which that was really rare and was very durable. Um, is actually uh, was fifth all time in scoring for both leagues uh, when he retired and is tenth today. Be you know you know he's not necessarily somebody who's thought of in those terms. Yeah, yeah, very good player, and and some of the I mean, obviously I think this is a big lament of this whole project that there's not enough video of ABA action, um, but the little that we could see of him at that point in his career, which is pretty much his prime. Because he could really move for a big man. I think, you know, as you noted, in kind of inside-outside game, he's really a score just from kind of all over the court. And uh, and by the time they got Artis Gilmore, obviously, he was a great compliment to him on the offensive end. So, yeah, no, Dennis was a phenomenal player that, that probably gets slept on a little too much. Yeah. And um, this season began with um, Mike Storen came in. He was the Indiana Pacers uh, general manager who had built that team into the powerhouse it became. Uh, came in and cleaned house. He fired Coach Gene Rhodes after a month, which was a – very controversial uh, move locally. Uh, Rhodes was was uh, well liked and had you know, been fairly successful. They were actually a, uh, already a pretty good team when he came in. Um, they were ten and five or so, and um, then um, Frank Ramsey, the great uh, Celtics player and Kentucky star, ended up being his replacement. It took a while to find him, and he would actually commute three hours away from Madisonville to uh, coach the team. Uh, with kind of the understanding that it would only be one year, but he was another guy who had sort of that civic duty behind him. It's like, okay, Kentucky's pro team needs me. I'll I'll go ahead and at least do this temporarily. Uh, they were only 32 and 35 in the regular season under Ramsey, but then came together um, in the playoffs to really um, make a, a special run. For, for the season, they were 44 and 40, which is fourth in the league, and they were just under, just just a negative SRS of .17, which is fourth in the league. So, uh, you know, they, they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't necessarily a team that was looking to go to the finals, but they, they made a surprise run to head into the finals. Yeah, yeah, and, and a pretty much a terrible defensive team that year. Uh, they were 10th, 10th in the league in defensive rating out of 11 teams. So um, it was very much, yeah, late season charge led by all offense. You know, obviously had the two three-point shooters and now Issel to combine with them. Um, and uh, Cincy Powell was an all-star that year as well. But, yeah, the coaching situation was, was very odd. Alex Groza actually took over for two games in between Gene Rhodes and Frank Ramsey. Um, and, yeah, as you talked about, Frank Ramsey it's like kind of bent over backwards to, to actually coach the team and, and yeah, ended up, facing the Utah Stars in the finals. Yeah, and Alex Rose is interesting. He was a guy who had, um, you know, in the 50s had been banned because he'd sort of been tainted by some of, like, those the college ga- gambling scandals. And uh, I believe was banned from the NBA. And then it sort of surfaced again later on in the ABA and, and served as coach and general manager for Kentucky. And then later uh, on was the general manager in San Diego. So it kind of, uh, you know, was, was able to uh, stay in basketball despite having that early, you know, scandalous past. Um, uh, yeah, other notable guys who played Walter Simon was also on this team and, um, and, and Goose Ligon, who was a good uh, defensive player, actually was his absence in the finals would be would be notable. Uh, they managed to uh, beat the Floridians uh, four to two in the uh, East semis. Uh, they uh, the Floridians had uh, Matt Calvin and Larry Jones, who were both small high scoring guards also had Ira Harge. 
was in the top score for them. And the uh, Floridians had actually won seven straight games up to the final game of the season to barely clinch the final spot with a record of 42 and 42. So they were very close to the Colonels in that record. Uh, Dampier hit a clutch, a 10 foot jumper near the end of game one to uh, seal it. And, and then they, and then able to take it from there uh, in the uh, East finals. They, they won four to two over the Virginia Squires, who were fifty-five win team. Had a very good uh, roster. Uh, Charlie Scott, as we mentioned, the co-rookie of the year. Doug Moe, who was a very good uh, defensive forward, though was aging a bit at this point. Uh, Ray Scott, who had come over from the NBA, was a pretty solid big man, a you know, de- decent outside shooter, and a George Carter, who was another, uh, you know, a pretty good forward on that team. And then the uh, seventy-one finals, they lost a four to three to the Utah Stars. This was the year that uh, Zemo Beatty had come to the Utah stars did an episode with curtis harris discussing uh that situation and even though the stars were heavily favored a much better regular season team uh kentucky didn't make it easy they gave them a a, a tough series yeah definitely yeah full seven game series um and yeah in a situation where they for sure were not the were not the favorites and it was again probably just an all offensive affair it's like the kentucky's game plan was clearly just let's outscore utah and hope for the best but zemo Beatty really dominated the series yeah, absolutely. And um, Utah won their games pretty handily, average win of 13 points, but then they lost all three of their ro- the, the games on the road by an average of four, including an overtime loss in game four. Um, the uh, the Stars won game five, 137 to 127 in game six in Freedom Hall. Uh, the Stars looked like they were they had a 195 lead with less than four remaining, but then uh, Cincy Powell hits a big shot and Louis Dampier hit a uh, three point play to not the score to, to tie the score at 100. And then after that, uh, the Colonel system free throws to go ahead and then uh, and then we're able to win game six. But then. Going back to Game Seven, um, Ligon he uh, was hampered by a back injury and and couldn't go in Game uh, Seven. The year I think he did play a little bit, but but was but was very ineffective. Uh, but despite that, Dan Issel had 41 points and uh, Cynthia Powell had 20 points, 19 rebounds, and they 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 were competitive. But then uh, Zelma Beatty had 36 points and 16 rebounds, and Willie Wise had 22 points and 20 rebounds, and the uh, and, and the Stars uh, were able to win at 131. 121 but but obviously a, a good effort for the colonels and with, with the youth of their team seemed to uh you know think that they were going to be on to great things yeah definitely there was there was absolutely a reason for optimism um to make a sort of run like that with the coaching change mid-season a la you know cleveland this, uh, this past season but yeah it's it's a it's a weird series it kind of reminds me there's like you know you see those random series in the east in these last four or five years where they might go seven, kind of like Philly and Boston in 2012, where it's like obviously Boston was a better team and they dominated all their home games. But just for some reason, those those home games in Kentucky, um, the Colonels found a way to kind of pull out each one. And, and a lot of times it was Dan Essel just going off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he definitely was. I mean, he and Dampier were yeah were both very very strong in that series. Um, so 72 things get even better. They, uh, they end up drafting, um, artist Gilmore, the, uh, the Floridians wanted Gilmore, but they were about to fold. So the colonels ended up winning a sealed bid auction for Gilmore. They, uh, they paid him uh, 10 years, $1.5 million contract, which in- include deferred payments, which were a, uh, staple of ABA contracts, which we'll get into in a, another episode. Um, there's he was introduced famously during the during halftime of a game in Kentucky they turned all the lights off and may, had gave him this uh, dramatic entrance and under a spotlight in Kentucky and the, uh, the the fans roared with the you know potential of, of having him coming in in the next season um 
There's also a press conference at the 21 Club in New York since Gilmore had been a fairly he was a fairly substantial college star. They measured him at seven foot eight with with his afro. Famously, he he was a as many players did at that time. He he had the very big afro. And um, as a rookie, he was named first team all in all ABA most valuable player rookie of the year over Julius Irving and ABA all rookie team. Um, he had. Um, a almost 60% field goal percentage and 17.8 rebounds per game, 23.8 points per game. Uh, extremely dominant player and was considered to have really no offensive game yet. You know, obviously scoring uh, almost 24 points a game in addition to the great rebounding and great defense. He was uh, an immediate you know sensation in the ABA, obviously winning the MVP, and then would uh, really be dominant in the ABA for the next five seasons, and then would would have a very good uh, NBA career as well. It, I, I did a recently did a um, basketball re- reference search comparing Shaquille O'Neal to Artis Gilmore, and was surprised at how uh, similar they were in a lot of respects. The one big difference is that um, Shaq was much more. Uh, he, he had much heavier usage in offense and, and had more you know points um, per game and, and you know we, we carried that burden but you know we, if you could kind of consider some of the uh, advantages that Gilmore had defensively you, you could make a you know a fairly solid comparison between the two. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, again, the, you know, the little video we get to see of Artis Gilmore at this time um, just looks like a completely different human on the court because a lot of these ABA teams did not have giant centers um, like the NBA at the time, where it was just that was that was the game. It was pounded down low and you know use your big and go from there. Whereas that really wasn't the case in the NBA. So to have that on your team with the backward that they already had was such a huge advantage. And yeah, I mean, like I was saying in that 71 season where they went to the finals, they were 10th in defensive rating out of 11. The next year they shot up to first and stayed at first for three of the next five seasons. Um, and the other season was they finished second. So yeah, I mean, he was just a force on the defensive end, just on his own block, blocking shots. His arms were so long, could get up quick. His second jump was pretty quick. Um, and yeah, you know, we talked about how his offense, you know, wasn't, the most refined, but at the time he was so big and so powerful, just a simple drop step or a simple little post move. I mean, he just dunk on people like it was just nothing. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, he was a very, very effective player, um, particularly that first year when, you know, obviously MVP is as a rookie, that's impressive leveling and win shares as well at 19.8, which is a crazy high number yeah. um, in a season and leveling and rebounding of course too. But yeah, so a dominant, dominant season from him. And, and yeah, and the Colonels were 68 and 16, um, which was the record in the ABA, the 7.99 SRS, which is also the best in ABA history. Um, uh, Issel, uh, he was third in the league at 30.6 points per game. Uh, Dampier was uh, had 36% three-point shooting, which is fourth in the league at 16 points per game. Um, yeah, and the, you know, they, they were just incredibly dominant in the regular season. Um, they hired uh, – Joe Mullaney came in. He had been the coach for the, uh, for the Lakers the previous year. He'd also been a veteran college coach. And um, – Carrier didn't play much this year. This was kind of like the sort of the the swan song for him. He only played 23 games because of injury. Other notable guys who on the team, uh, Mike Gale uh, in particular, he would make an all defensive team. He was a, he was a pretty good defensive guard, and uh, Jimmy O'Brien who played from 72 to uh, 74. So dominant regular season, but then in the first round they lose to the uh, they lose to the New York Nets in a uh, a, a pretty shocking upset. Um, uh, Rich and I discussed this uh, quite a bit in our um, playoff upsets um, series, so we won't get into necessarily every detail, but uh, the, the Nets had a 44 wins and a .21 SRS, and the uh, the Colonels, as we mentioned, the 68 wins and 7.99 SRS, so, so, so quite a, a shocking win. Um, 
really, uh, Rick Barry had you know one incredible game where he went off in the first game for fifty points, which certainly helped the uh, the Nets surprise in Game One. And actually, uh, Game Four, uh, Barry set out the game with strep throat, and and Bill Melchioni, their great guard, was injured. But uh, John Roach, another guard, uh, stepped up and um, thirty eight points, I believe, and just, just was able to uh, dribble all around the court and just get shots wherever he wanted them. Uh, completely managed to take the Colonels out of their game. There's there's one thing that uh, was talked about in loose balls where you know sort of the defensive philosophy of the Colonels was to um, allow opposing offensive players into the lane where they would get their shots blocked by Gilmore. And I think Gilmore had something like five blocks per game this season, which is just incredible. Amy, he was a very good block shot blocker for the rest of his career, but he had nothing like that for the rest of his career. So you know, um, but the the Nets were able to. Um, uh, adjust and kind of figure out that okay we're not going to drive to the uh, basket instead we're you know just going to take that jumper that's now open and realize that um you know in in, in they had the shooters the, the guys who could you know kind of make those uh jumpers and the colonel said obviously had a hard time adjusting yeah definitely and uh, that's interesting you talk about the defensive system i was, I was kind of thing i was going to touch on later is yeah, it was very much just a funnel system i mean and even even they didn't even care if they were allowing middle i mean it was just it's fine. We've got this giant back there that's going to get these blocks. So um, I, I don't know how long it took for them to to decide on that system. I don't know if it was early in the season, but uh, by the time the playoffs roll around, a little video that we have of, of these games is is yeah, it's it's. I mean the the ball the men guarding the ball handlers. It's pretty atrocious. I mean it's like just kind of matador defense. But then you know it's all made up for by having Gilmore back there. So um, that'd have been nice to you know have when I back when I played <laughs> to have yeah. a guy like that. But uh, but no, that is that is that was not the case. So you know, it's a very different style of play. Um, at times you're just like, what are they doing? But then you know Gilmore makes up for it. So yeah, the five blocks a game that's just an absurd number, and it continued into the playoffs until. Um, obviously, the, yeah, like you said, the mid-range game just killed them in that series. And, you know, Rick Barry, obviously, the main proponent of that. Yeah. Um, I, mid-range game, you know, it's uh, it, yep. everything. everything's a circle. So. Yep. so the 72-73 season, they're still very good. 56-28, second in the league, and they have their first in SRS. Uh, the ad Rick Mount, who had uh, was an Indiana prep star who had been a bit of a disappointment for the uh, Pacers. He was the first high schooler on Sports Illustrated, first high school uh, basketball player on Sports Illustrated to be on the cover. And uh, but he was a good outside shooter and did fit pretty well uh, in Kentucky. Still not didn't quite reach expectations that were expected of him, but he you know did did better there. And then Wendell Ladner was an, another addition who um, pretty more, more famous probably for the. Um, the the Burt Reynolds ex um, poster that was made of him that was sold at the um, that was a promotion that the uh, Colonels had that was sold out pretty much immediately but was a he was a favorite of the uh, of the ladies he had a looks uh, a, a little bit like Burt Reynolds had the similar mustache and similar look so they did a uh, a, a, a similar promotion where he um, has a basketball strategically placed over his uh, midsection and otherwise is. Uh, I don't think he's entirely bare, but he's uh, short shorts and otherwise uh, not wearing too much. So, um, yeah, classic and, ABA there. Yes, and he, he also was known very much for being a guy who just had incredible hustle and and liked to fight people. So he was uh, uh, he would later be a, a fairly important part of the '74 Nets championship team. But he uh, he he was uh, here with the Colonels. He, he kind of bounced around the league uh, quite a bit, but. 
Um, so well, yeah, just the, just the fact that a player like that could make it in this league is is saying something. Kind of where where it was at, and you know, I mean, obviously anyone can kind of question where it stood in terms of the NBA. But imagine even in the '80s, a player like that making it to the league, and I mean, that's kind of his main thing is he just likes to fight people. You know, you know, that's just like a. Just another one of those things that shows like how different the ABA was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think he produced okay. I mean, he certainly, you know, he he brought some defense and he brought some, you know, some diamond right. from the spots. I mean, you know, he's he's like your Delavadova today. I mean, you know, not Delavadova doesn't do some things, but you know, he 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 kind of brings that you know sense to the uh, to the league. I mean, probably the, the similar type of recklessness that you know that uh, Delavadova is repeated for as well. That, that's probably a pretty good comparison. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's spot on. Yeah. Um. Thank you. So, um, talk about, you know, sort of the Colonel's offensive style. They, you know, with, with, um, Issel and Gilmore, they become a little bit more of a grinded out team going through the post while the rest of the league was, uh, you know, more open core, you know, more relying on the fast break and going around where the, you know, the Colonels had that strength in the middle. You know, Gilmore was by far the best center in the league at this point. Um, you know, Daniels was aging a bit and some of the other, you know, uh, Beatty was aging a bit as well. And, and none of those guys had the size that, um, Gilmore had so they they sort of had a contrast in that way and this is around the time in which I think the you know Dampier's three-point attempts go down quite a bit too I mean he's still effective for three-point range but he's not gunning it like he was in the early days of the ABA right yeah from the 72 to the 73 season they both their pace and their offensive rating went down while the defensive rating stayed as the top in the league so no certainly that that was there was a change of focus there um and that clearly had to come from from just again just having Gilmore it's like you have to you have a guy that dominant in that league at the time there's you certainly have to kind of build around that so um yeah I think this is the first year we see Dampier not quite be the you know star level player that he was I mean I think he continued to make all-star teams based off you know kind of just reputation but sure um but yeah but no you kind of see the drop off from him a little bit mm -hmm. um so they beat the squires in the uh in the first round the squires had uh, julius serving it was his last year last of two years there uh george gervin who was a rookie then um who had kind of come on come on in toward the end of the year uh jim eakins who's a solid big man who played for the squires for most of their time in virginia uh fatty taylor and dave towards towards would be a, a key part of the blazer 77 championship team kind of a scrappy small guard um and uh it, it the ease of the series was kind of uh unexpected they won four games to one even though the squares were 42 and 42 but they did have irving and he you know irving obviously was uh he, even at this point was an incredible star who was known for some big performances so the fact that uh yeah th there was some dissension there i think and that that just didn't you know uh work out so well also they were you know, pretty young with irving and gervin um, then they they beat the Carolina Cougars, who were 57 and 27. They beat them in seven games. The uh, Cougars were pretty stacked. They had uh, Billy Cunningham, who had come over from the uh, NBA and was the uh, ABA MVP this year, kind of a do-everything um, forward. Uh, Matt Calvin, who was a good small guard. Uh, Tom Owens, who was a, a journeyman, but, but pretty productive. A big man would also be a part of the late 70s Blazers teams. Uh, Joe Caldwell, who had come over from the um, NBA, was a good player for the Hawks. Good um, kind of up-tempo, fast-break uh, player. Did, did kind of a, a do-everything utility type player. Um and while he had sort of created some frustrations with some attitude issues, he definitely could still play. And then Steve Snapper Jones. Um, and they were coached by Larry Brown, who was in his first year of his long uh, coaching career after his ABA playing career. Um, and um, 
but the Colonels had managed to uh, win the series. Um, the um, the they were the, the Cougars were down two to one as they were able to, but but the Cougars were able to win uh, Game Four in Kentucky and then uh, Game Five in um, Carolina. The sixth game uh, was a route for the Colonels, so they um, went back to. Um, Went back to Carolina. They were, of course, expected to win at home, but then the Colonels ended up winning uh, quite a bit. The uh, uh, they were up by 17 late. The Cougars tried to make a uh, run, but uh, but Kentucky was um, was able to win it pretty easily, 107 to 96. Yeah, yeah, crazy series, um, and and really kind of a marquee series in, in kind of the ABS history. The two great teams, tons of talent on both sides. Um, like you said, Larry Brown being you know the head coach for one team, it's like this. I, I did this huge kind of playoff series uh, master list that I'm kind of building, and I'm going to eventually do a bigger project with it. But uh, yeah, I went to the ABA as well over the spring, and and this was one that that scored out very highly uh, just based on because I had used different factors, whereas you know the team's SRS ratings going into it, amount of talent, all star all star nods, future Hall of Famers, Hall of Fame coaches if they were involved in, and this one's going to score very very highly for the ABA. It's kind of one of the marquee series of the entire. Um, ABA history so yeah really awesome game and, and the seventh game you kind of wish it would have been maybe a little closer if we could have some video of it that'd be that'd be one that you kind of go back and really relive and unfortunately we just can't so yeah um, yeah the only game that was really particularly close it looks like it you know at least as far as the final score was game five which Carolina won, won by right. five so yeah the, all the other ones are you know looks like they're about 10 or more so so maybe not you know and sometimes you know though a game will be competitive until two minutes left and then one team will pull away so there may have been it may have it might have been one of those series where that was enjoyable even despite the scoring margins but it doesn't look like based on the final scores there was necessarily that classic that you know you would hope for in this situation right right yeah just in terms of the talent it's like this could have been one of those you know kind of what we had this past year with like an okc and and golden state thing and it just didn't quite work out um and the fact that game seven was such a such kind of a lame duck that you know that that's a shame but uh yeah i mean obviously a huge huge win for kentucky um that that's kind of for a franchise that the year before had really failed to live up to their regular season hype. You know, this team finally did do that. And so that, that was, that was cool to see for sure. Yeah. And then they reach the finals and they lose in seven to the, to their rival, the Indiana Pacers. And, uh, the Pacers had actually moved west the year previously, uh, uh, you know, and Mike Storen and uh, Dick Tinkham of the Pacers who were, who were close from the time with the Pacers kind of hatch, uh, the idea of the Pacers moving west because they figured that it would create um, possible finals matchups between the two um, cities, which were of course fairly close to each other, and would uh, you know theoretically create a, you know lucrative situation if they met in the finals. That didn't happen in '72, but in '73 uh, it did happen. The um, uh, the Pacers were able to to edge uh, the Colonels out in game. One, despite it, despite it being in Louisville, um, a lot of physical play and controversial calls uh, during the game, in, including a situation where uh, the Colonels uh, they they made a basket, but then it was it's determined that uh, the thirty second violation had occurred. Uh, Pacers managed to win in overtime, one eleven to one oh seven. Uh, Kentucky did win uh, game two uh, fairly easily, one fourteen to one oh two. Then uh, one game three in um, Indianapolis, nine two eighty eight to. Uh, to edge things, the 
Uh, Pacers won a close game in Game 4, 90-86, and another close game in Game 5 in Kentucky again, 89-86, so they were up uh, 3-2. The Colonels were able to win in um, Indiana, 109-93 in Game 4, so a lot of road teams win in this series. And finally, Game 7, we're in Kentucky, and another game on the road. The uh, the, the Pacers won all three of their championships on the road, uh, interestingly enough. Um, George McGinnis was incredible during this uh, postseason. Uh, 22.3 points, 13.7 rebounds against the uh, Colonels, and uh, 27 in the uh, in the final 88-81 uh, to 81 game, kind of a slowdown game. Actually, uh, quite a few low-scoring games in this series. You know, you're used to the ABA kind of being more fast-paced and and, uh, and that isn't necessarily the uh, case here. Right, yeah. I mean, that three-game stretch in the middle, games three, four, and five, neither team um, even breaks 93. So um, that is, that's a very bizarre thing for, for the ABA. And, yeah, I mean, game six is really the only one where one of the teams kind of goes off, I guess, too, as well. But yeah. um, And, and no. even even during that time, the NBA, that would have been rare in the NBA. I mean, even right, though the right. NBA was considered the fast-paced league, the NBA was still, you know, you know a, a not as fast as it was in the 60s, but certainly faster than it is today. Right, high pace, yeah, yeah, many possessions and uh, bad shooting, so yes. you know, plenty, plenty of opportunities for for extra rebounds, extra points. So, exactly. um, yeah, no, the, the road thing is has always been strange to me because I was noticing that too. How you know, the road team won a bunch of games in in all of Kentucky's runs, and I don't know if that was a case of the officiating was different or all these arenas that they're playing in. I mean, you know, Kentucky by the end had about 8,000 people once they moved to Freedom Hall. That was kind of like their average attendance. And that was considered very good for the ABA. Um, so maybe it's just the fact that there's quite, you know, isn't as many people. I don't know. I, I'm trying to just, you know, just theorize something as to why there didn't seem to be as much of a home court advantage in the ABA as there was, as there is now, obviously, um, yeah. or even, you know, in the 80s or 90s. And it's, it's just kind of a strange thing that, that happened during that stretch of, of the basketball history, really. Yeah, I haven't looked at it um, deeply, but uh, from what I recall, like in the early days in the NBA, uh, like 50s and 60s, home court advantage was a, you know, more teams won games at home during those times than do now. Um, and that's steadily sort of decreased. I, I don't know exactly what it was in the 70s or in the ABA. You know, in this series, you know, um, obviously Louisville and Indianapolis are not that far from each other. So you may just have you might have some traveling and you also might have some just, you know, you're not having to have long flights. You're able to, you know, I, I don't know if they stayed, you know, where they stayed in the hotels. But, you know, even if it if they stayed on the road in the, at those cities, you're still not having, you know, something if it, it happened, if it had been in Los Angeles or whatever. You know, so I, that, I'm sure that makes somewhat of a difference as far as the series goes. But as far as like that overall trend, yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I, I don't know where I, I, that might, I don't know if anybody's looked at that or not, but that, that's an interesting observation. Right, and, and as I, you know, I'm just looking at this from just just in terms of the playoffs. Um, I mean, I haven't just like I said, I was doing that massive playoff sure. um, kind of study that I've been doing, and yeah, it's just it's just a weird a weird time where in the playoffs, particular, there's a lot of upsets in big games, and ones you would think, okay, these games, you know, five or six would really matter to this home team, and uh, and they seem to drop it. It's just it's just kind of an odd occurrence during that stretch, and, and again, it occurred in this series. Yeah. So, uh, 73-74 season, um, the Colonels are 53-31, and 31, second in the league. 
uh, second in the league in SRS, 3.71, so less impressive than it's been the last uh, few seasons. The John Y. Brown uh, purchased uh, the interest of the previous owner, Wendell Cherry, uh, in between these two seasons, helped to keep the team from moving to Cincinnati, where um, yeah, obviously it was a bigger city. The um, Royals had just moved out of Cincinnati, so you know they had a you know, chance to uh, move into that market that had been established NBA market, even though it obviously had uh, had failed there, but was a bigger city than Louisville, and 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 I guess uh, you had a chance there. Um, and uh, John Y. Brown, controversial owner of the 1970s, to put it mildly, um, he put his wife Ellie and a ten-woman board of directors in charge of the team, which uh, uh, Mike Storen, the GM, did not like. Thought that it was a time that he was a sign that he was going to run the team his way, and decided to leave the team as result. And then two months later, actually became the ABA commissioner. So. Um, and then uh, Joe Mullaney, the coach, decided to leave as well, uh, figuring that, you, you know, th- there were some ideas that Brown had that he just thought, you know, these, th- this stuff doesn't make sense. I'm sure there was some sexism at play with the board of directors as well, although they, at the very least, seemed to, um, you know, th- th- the moves that the team made over the next few seasons seemed to be fairly s- smart, sound moves. So it didn't really necessarily hurt, hurt the decision making there. And they were able to launch a effective ticket selling campaign, reportedly tripling ticket season ticket sales for the next uh, season and doubling overall attendance so uh and, and it got some publicity there's a people magazine uh, feature from uh, 75 on uh, on both the browns talking about ellie brown and um and, and talking about some of the decisions that they made some of the promotional stuff and feeling like that um you know that they they, they do make a lot of decisions and and the players seem to you know they had they had some good seem to have a good relationship with ellie and with the uh, group and were willing to sit down with her so um, it, it, it seemed to work out fairly well, despite you know maybe seeming like an absurd idea at the time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you can if you can imagine if if this happened now, where there's a, a female owner and an all female board, um, and like you know not as sexist as it was then, society that we have now, it'd be an uproar. You can imagine in '73, that was obviously a huge deal. And um, yeah, I mean, there's like a little retrospective that you can find on YouTube where there's kind of like a video of a bunch of the principals from the 1975 team talking about that season and everything. And, and they have all great things to say about Ellie Brown. So it doesn't seem like, you know, it, I mean, it seemed like it was a success almost all the way around, um, other than just a few kind of older white men being angry at the situation in general. Um, it seemed like it worked. And Hubie Brown, especially, obviously no relation to the Browns, but um, it just loved her and just talked about how, how her kind of steady hand just like really helped the whole franchise and set the tone, you know, from the top down. So uh, it was pretty cool that that was allowed to happen and, and that it worked. Yeah. Um, so, um, Legendary Kentucky coach and even more famous racist uh, Adolph Rupp is hired as vice president of the board. It was six minutes after he'd left a similar position in Memphis and decried the ABA as a Bush League. So he, he, he liked the money. Uh, Babe McCarthy took over as coach in 74. He's uh, known as Magnolia Mouth and was uh, spent seven years in the ABA, uh, was ABA coach of the year twice and coached in three all-star games. He'd also coached for... Uh, New Orleans and um, and Memphis when they uh, moved there, and uh, w- was known for his babisms. Um, some of those phrases include um, "You got to come at him like a biting sow," and uh, "Why panic at five in the morning because it's still dark out?" And my favorite one: "Now let's cloud up and rain all over him." So, 
those are those are better in uh, in in a southern accent, which I don't want to you know I don't want to make anybody mad by trying a southern accent. So um, he also was notorious for hating what he called pissant guards, who were like the very small guards, and he he absolutely hated like guys like Larry Brown and you know the the guys you met Matt Calvin, the guy he didn't want any of those guys in his teams. He wanted larger guards for whatever reason. He would he had a bias against um, he had a bias against very small guards. So. Yeah, there's a, there's a little stretch in, in loose balls about that. Um, it just They used the word pissant about five times and, you know, two-page stretch about how much he hated those. Um, really, really, I mean, the lack of, like, foresight to see kind of where the leak was going is, is startling for sure. But, uh, but yeah, no, he seemed like not the most pleasant guy to be around. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on your personality. But Yeah, <laughs> I, I think most people actually did like him. He was just, like, he was kooky, you know, and he, um, I mean, he did things like if a player was sad, he would suddenly, like, like, uh, he, would, he would go away for a while and then he would show up and bring some ladies to uh, practice to like comfort them. And like he would, you know, they like he would go like they would everyone would like head to the gym and he would about, about to go in. And he's like, oh, oops, I forgot the key. Let's let's call it off today, guys. You know, he was just like a, he was kind of a character. I think most most people like playing for him. I I, I, mean, I got the sense more that he was, uh, uh, you know, while he may, he may have you know been angry sometimes, he was generally a guy that people enjoyed playing for. So. Um, so a major move that they made, they added a John Roach who had uh, burned them so much in that net series in 72. He was a midseason trade for Gail and Ladner. And actually he ended up being shipped out, uh, not that much longer after he, he uh, in the, that, that's a people magazine feature. Ellie Brown mentioned that, you know, um, uh, that, that was like the one, t- one time where, you know, when she was unable to resolve personality between him and, and her coach, she traded the player, you know, was what was sort of a, one of the things that was brought up as far as her dealing with the players directly and, you know, making important decisions. So, um, during the season, Gilmore, uh, he had 40 rebounds against the Nets in, uh, and I believe that set an ABA record. Um, they ended up beating the Cougars uh, much easier this time. In uh, f- they swept them in the East semis and then lost to the Nets. Uh, were swept by the Nets in the East finals. The Nets would win the championship this year with uh, Dr. J. So they faced Dr. J again in this uh, series. Uh, the Nets also have Larry Keenan, Brian Taylor, Billy Paltz, uh, Super John Williamson, and uh, Mike Gale and Wendell Ladner, who they of course had traded uh, for Roche with the uh, Nets. So um, and that ended up obviously playing. Uh, uh, poorly, um, the key moment of this series was in Game Three. Um, Irving hit a fallaway bank shot at the bu- at the buzzer to win the game for the Nets and to give the Nets, of course, a 3-0 series lead. And um, McCarthy was actually named Co-Coach of the Year with uh, Joe Mullaney, who had gone to Utah, the previous Colonels coach. But then, uh, because after the, the second round, Ross, he was fired, and then unfortunately, he died of colon cancer in March of 1975. So, so less than a year later. Yeah, really sad. Yeah, I kind of read a little bit about that myself and um, kind of awful. Like, what a terrible turn, you know, just a year of, of the last year of, of that man's life. Um, or really just a bummer. But no, that 74 season was definitely, it was the low in terms of SRS of that four, of that great kind of five-year run. Um, they dropped, that was the one year they did drop from first in defensive rating to second. Um, it just kind of seemed like it didn't totally mesh that year and then obviously culminated in that second round flame out, um, or I guess semifinal flame out. Um, Gilmore again led the league in rebounding and all star, you know, was an all star again. Dan Pierre was an all star again. Dan Nissel was an all star again. So, you know, all the pieces were there for them to be great again. But the second round, again, the irony of, of them making that trade, thinking that would help them out, and then getting burned by the very team that they were trying to beat with that trade. Uh, 
yeah, not not a great look. So you can understand maybe why you know uh, McCarthy would get the axe after that season. Yeah, and you know Jeremiah Brown was known for his lack of patience, or would be, would become kind of known for that. He's still obviously early as an owner. Um, seventy five though. Um, Huey Brown is hired as coach, and he had gained a reputation as an assistant in Milwaukee just with his uh, detail oriented, uh, being detail oriented, his preparation. Um, and he impressed the Colonels with his interview with uh, just being able to size the team up and also uh, his ability to actually ask questions of the team and really as the, the team interviewing for him as much as he was interviewing for the team understood of a situation that was championship robust. Uh, Stan Albeck, later uh, head coach um, in the ABA and NBA, would uh, become uh, Hubie's assistant and would bring a lot of ABA experience. And they had a kind of a, a good mesh of personalities because Brown was very intense and Albeck was more laid back. Um, Hubie also, in loose balls gets into this talking about like understanding like um, you know things that we kind of consider advanced stats concept like point differential that you know really you know was not something that was talked about in the NBA landscape at large you know really up until maybe like ten years ago he was talking about in the seventies and did lots of charting lots of stats lots of like um, you know. Um, Stats that we kind of take, take for granted today, he was sort of using in the 70s, so that was kind of interesting. He also tried to um, use 10 guys instead of 8 because he felt like if you um, played 10 guys, you could keep your whole team happy because you only really have dis- a dissension in the last couple players, and those are usually marginal guys, and it wasn't going to you know, necessarily spread throughout the locker room. He also called Louis Dampier the best clutch player he'd ever seen and tried to give him the ball when the game was on the line. Also tried to increase Gilmore's workload on offense, took, taking away some shots from Issel, which, you know, uh, he's tried to smooth that over, but everyone, um, what, but you know, it worked obviously with their success. Uh, he was also very serious about about practice and, uh, and also uh, was a known cursor. There's a story about... Um, a, a game which was sparsely attended there was uh the, the car the, the his cursing was going out over the radio and his his wife called uh, during halftime you can hear him over the radio can't you do anything about this and i thought that was a pretty funny story yeah no yeah he clearly had a mouth uh, on him um and back in the aba obviously there's, there's, that's gonna be much more likely for that to happen it's not like there's an eighteen thousand seat city and that's sold out where you can't you know everything's drowned out by the, the noise um no hilarious but but yeah back to hubie um, there's a, a little section in Loose Balls about him actually drawing up plays for three-pointers, which is was just unheard of. If you watch games from back then, there's no, like, guys coming off pin downs, like, coming off curls for, for threes. It's like, that just didn't happen. It wasn't even in people's playbooks. But Hubie actually would draw those up for Dampier. Um, yeah, and he, he even talked about Dampier, like, being okay with him taking a three off, you know, like, uh, on the fast break. It, right, know, If it was right. open, which, yeah, that, which looks like, wow, that's, you know, because people even, up until Steph Curry, people even got you were like no you don't never do that and that you know it's like the last i think three or four years where that's the orthodoxy on that has changed even in the nba right right and, and even still you know there's coaches that i'm around that think that's just like an absolute no-no and you have a guy who you know 40 years ago was allowing that um in the nba that's that's pretty cool honestly and uh, and you know just kind of shows his his foresight that that this is where the league was going and you use something that's worth one more point you know it seems like simple math to us now um, but at the time it was just very much rejected so it's cool to see that he actually used that yeah, absolutely. Um, so they, they do change around their bench quite a bit. They add uh, a lot of ABA veterans, uh, Gene Littles, Marv Roberts, Ted McLean, uh, Bert Everett, who was a young player, and uh, Will Jones. Uh, Will Jones actually was John Brown's idea. He, he tried to figure out who the guy who played um, 
Irving the toughest, and Will Jones was the guy who they decided to pick up. So they they ended up picking him up, and and although he didn't really matter because they didn't really need him for well, I, I guess it did matter a little bit. Because we'll, we'll, we'll explain why in just a moment. Um, interestingly enough, it's a very top heavy league this season. Like there are three teams, including the um, Colonels, who have uh, like an over six SRS, and then there's a bunch of teams like kind of at the bottom during this time. And this is you know the the seventy five is the second to last season for the ABA, so you know the it's increasingly stratis- uh, stratifying with the uh, you know the, the the poor teams like San Diego and uh, Virginia are really shrinking, and the the strong teams, the Colonels and the Nets, are are doing much better. Yeah, I mean, it seems like yeah, they're very much fortifying their rosters, and and it's becoming you know there's zero middle class, and and yeah, to see to see them have a six point two four SRS, which is not that much lower than. Their seventy-two season when they had seven point nine nine, um, and that'd be third in the league. That's that was that was shocking. Um, right. It kind of I, I had to go look at that and be like, oh wow, that's you know there were three teams that were really legit teams that year. Obviously they went fifty-eight twenty-six and um, or again first in defensive rating. So uh, you can you know thank Gilmore and Hubie Brown's coaching for that. Sure. Um, so they were for most of the season they were in second place in the East, but uh, behind the Nets. But then they won 22 out of their last 25 games, including 10 in a row to close the regular season. Uh, they had a 16-point differential during that stretch. And then they ended up beating the Nets in a tiebreaker to win the division. Um, they were four games behind the Nets with seven to go. I, I believe they beat them three times during that stretch and then were able to, uh, you know, then they had the one-game playoff victory. Um, and then they ended up playing the Memphis Sounds in the first uh, game and the Memphis Sounds were 27 and 57 so the fact that they made the playoffs um, shows you the state of the league at the time uh, the Sounds had Tom Owens, George Ca- Carter and, and Mel Daniels at the very very end of his uh, or near the very end of his career um, and then the because as Rich and I talked about in our playoff upsets show the Spirits of St. Louis have the greatest upset in pro basketball history playoff upset by beating the uh, Nets in the first round so the fact that the Colonels actually were able to you know catch the Nets uh, forced that upset to happen and then they got a easier shot at beating the Spirits although the Spirits actually uh, they did give it a a bit of a a, you know those those games were fairly competitive and the fact that Freddie Lewis got hurt I believe in game three of that series um, you know, the Spirits had a chance to you know, come back and make it tough, but once Lewis was hurt, they didn't really have anything else. They had Marvin Barnes and Maurice Lucas. They had young talent, but, you know, had a difficult time harnessing it without Lewis on there, who was kind of the steady veteran who had, you know, led Indiana to a lot of championships. Right, right. And and uh, that game against the Nets is one of those, yeah, it's just a huge, huge game. And I don't know, when I was doing my research on this, I don't know if you found this. Do you, do you know why Louisville got to play, or why Kentucky got to play that game in Louisville? Uh, I don't know. It might have just been a coin flip. Yeah, I, I didn't look that up. I did they win the uh, regular season series? That would be the only other thing that would that I would think would be a factor. Uh, I didn't. I didn't actually check that. But yeah, no, I, I was thinking that I mean, for such a huge, huge game, it was interesting that you know Kentucky got to host that game. Um, it's like, well, if they're going to get to host it, why don't you just give them the tiebreaker now? You know, if that's like, <laughs> I don't know why. Why would that? You know, if anything, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, perhaps someone listening will let us know if they know the answer to that. So, yeah, but no, like you said, that that 
changed kind of the whole playoff structure. Um, and then and then the Spirits pulling off that upset. It's like, to me, it reminded me of 2007 when Golden State beats Dallas, and that really opens the door for San Antonio to now become kind of the class of the of the West. And that really you know, ended up with a title, just like it did for the, for Kentucky this year. Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, Kentucky beat a 27-win team in the playoffs and a 32-win team in the playoffs. And then in the, honestly, in the finals, they beat the Pacers, who had had a pretty big upset of their own uh, to make it to the ABA Finals. They were only 45-39. and 39. They had upset a heavily favored uh, Denver team, who had like a 20 games better a team, another one of the big upsets of the uh, 70s, talked about on that episode as well. Um, and this was a—the the Pacers still had George McGinnis. They still had Darnell Hillman and Billy Keller and Roger Brown very much on the bench at that point, but they'd added Billy Knight and Kevin Joyce— um, and the uh, Colonels were able to win this series four games to one, avenging their 73 finals loss. Um, and uh, Gilmore dominant, 25 points per game, 21 rebounds per game, 1.2 blocks per game. Uh, McGinnis also very good. He had uh, he had 27.4 points per game, 14 rebounds per game, and 6.4 assists, although his playoff averages were 32.3, 15.98.2. So incredible uh, playoff run for him. Um Colonels won a blowout uh, 102-94 in Game 1. Game 2 was closer. Uh, score was died with 12 to go, but then uh, they went inside to Gilmore, who um, put the Colonels up by 2 with a uh, close-range shot. And then Billy Keller actually managed to uh, hit a three-pointer at the buzzer for Indiana, but then after a few minutes of deliberation, the referees uh, ruled that it had come too late, and uh, the Colonels won the series, and that was pretty much the um, uh, you know there really you know the the last games were all fairly close, but there was you know the, after that the Pacers didn't really seem to have a shot. Uh, they lost Game Four in Indiana, ninety four to eighty six, but the other ones they uh, they took handily. And in Game Five, they won one ten to one hundred five, um, and Gilmore won the playoff MVP award uh, during the series. Yeah, again, I love that that ABA had the playoff MVP, not just the Finals MVP. That's uh, another you know a little plus in there in their column. But yeah, really cool that they got to win that game at home um, after years of of being you know really good and right there and just never being able to get over the hump. Uh, cool that you know Louisville got to experience the championship at home. Um, yes. Kind of awesome for them. They uh, celebrate by throwing Ellie Brown in the shower. That it's a, uh, yeah. a tradi- <laughs> tradition yeah. that they throw the owner in the shower, so they threw her in the shower and. Um, and um, Hugh Brown ing- had the word pressure in- engraved on their championship rings with the idea that they, because they, they played so much under pressure. Um, but it's, uh, though it's interesting, they, they just had, had such a, I mean, they happened to win the championship this year, but they had such a, uh, they, they were able to, they were very lucky in who they faced as far as like the, oh, definitely. You know, the, the, yeah, the, the two top tier teams, both of them were upset uh, early on in the play, you know, Denver and, um, and the Nets. So they were able to kind of, uh, they had some luck in winning this championship, but Hey, you know, you, you can only face who you're facing and they, they won those games. So, you know, kudos to them. Right, I'm sure. I'm sure in '72 they would argue it's lucky that you know that nobody had to face them. Yeah, because yeah, that, they got right. blown out the first round. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely a fair point. So, so '76. Uh, we'll just go through that a little bit uh, briefly. They, they they falter a bit. They're 46 and 38, fourth out of seven teams in the league. The, 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 several teams have folded at this point. Uh, fourth in the league in SRS. Um, Danisel was sold uh, before the 76 seasons, first going to the Baltimore Claws, who never actually, they were the Memphis franchise, but they never actually ended up playing a game in Baltimore. They, um, the team is folded during the preseason after the owners don't have any money. Issel eventually goes to the Nuggets. Um, and John White Brown is criticized heavily for this, but basically he said, you know, hey, you know, I, 
we lost five hundred thousand dollars a year. I, I need to do this. You know, I saved the franchise and I brought in my movies brought us a championship while you're criticizing me and sort of was the end of the honeymoon for Brown in uh, Louisville. Um, they did manage to get Maurice Lucas. They, they, they had Caldwell Jones briefly after San Diego folded, then they traded him for Maurice Lucas. And it was a good player on the court for him, but led to a really infamous confrontation between uh, Lucas and Huey Brown. And, and, and I've heard it told several ways, but basically the story is that um, – Hubie is either yelling at Artis Gilmore or he's yelling directly at Lucas and Lucas, you know, gets in Hubie's face and, you know, points his fingers like, hey, you don't you don't shout at me like this or you don't shout at him like this. And then Hubie is yells at him and tells him to, you know, Hubie was known for his temper uh, during that time. And there's, you know, an article written like in 1979 or 80 um, when he's coach of the Hawks where he has some views on black players that are less than enlightened. And, you know, maybe he's changed since then. And, you know, he's obviously, you know, great basketball mind and, you know, incredible coach and, you know, comes off as a decent person, at least in his commentary. So it's hard to know what's in his heart, but he certainly had um, his issues during this time. And, you know, and, and not only that, but he and, Huey Brown and John Y. Brown also clashed quite a bit with the way that John Y. Brown was running the team. And um, so there's a lot, a lot of tumultuous stuff going on during the season. But by the end of the season, they, the team is playing well. They thought they had not had a chance to defend the title. They beat the uh, the Pacers in a mini-series in the first round, two games to one. But then they lose to uh, the Denver team where they had traded Dan Issel, who had been a powerhouse the year before, and then reshaped themselves even more with uh, they had, uh, Issel and David Thompson. Also had Bobby Jones, Byron Beck, and Ralph Simpson, really just a powerhouse team that year, um, and lost to them in the semifinals. Yeah, right. That uh, Denver team is just awesome. Uh, it's kind of shocking that Kentucky even took them to seven. Um, really, just yeah, very good on Kentucky for even doing that. But, no, it's pretty clear that Lucas and, and Brown are just not fans of each other. Um, and just kind of an unfortunate situation after the year before, you know, every every player on the team, both in, in the stuff I've read and and that that kind of retrospective on the '75 championship team just loved UB. Um, talked about how much the how great the chemistry was between the coaching staff and the players, and um, really seemed to enjoy the season. And just it just seemed like both with you know '76 winding down, it seemed like the merger was obviously coming and teams folding. It's just it, Kentucky also, uh, as with the rest of the league, it just kind of petered out. Um, and, you know, a bit unfortunate to to you know, have that be your title defense season, but you know that was the nature of the ABA. Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, the, then the, the leagues merge and fans in Kentucky no longer have a team. Um, John Way Brown accepted $3 million to fold the team rather than paying $3.2 million to join the NBA, which you know, made sense as a financial decision, but he further um, uh, you know, angered the fans, obviously. Um, John Y. Uh, said that he later would say that Ellie and I decided that basketball is not the kind of business we want to be in. But then, not long afterward, he would buy the Buffalo Braves for $1.5 million. So, <laughs> kind of an odd uh, decision there. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, he would uh, he would make some big moves for Buffalo, which we talked about John Way Brown in our craziest owners um, story. But some, some details that I didn't know at the time that I, I wanted to share here, since we don't really have a good opportunity to do that. Uh, after they had traded Bob McAdoo to the Knicks, which had been done sort of under right when they're transitioning ownership, and it was more of a uh, Paul Snyder, the previous owner's decision, than John Wayne Brown's, he ended up um, re-signing Randy Smith, their all-star guard, then uh, trading the team's first-round pick 
to the Bucks for Sweden Nader, who had been picked up in, from as a free agent from the ABA. And then in a single day, he made two significant trades. Uh, one was trading Adrian Dantley, who was the rookie of the year, to the Pacers for Billy Knights, who was second in the league in scoring the previous season. And then four hours later, he acquired a tiny Archibald from the Nets for George Johnson and a first-round pick in 1979. And then would eventually uh, gain a full share of the team from Snyder. And then the following year, which we've we've gone through, uh, swap franchises with um, the Celtics, um, Irv Levin, um, and the the Braves then became the Clippers and moved to San Diego. And uh, John Brown took uh, control of the Celtics. But eventually, he clashed with Red Auerbach to uh, so much, making moves without consulting him, including uh, a uh, trading three first round picks for Bob McAdoo that uh, eventually Auerbach threatened to leave to become president of the Knicks if um, uh, co-owner Harry Mangurian didn't get rid of John Y. Brown, and eventually Brown sold the interest of the team to him, and he left pro basketball from in 1979. And actually, he and Ellie got divorced in 1977, then he went to run for governor and married former Miss America CBS sportscaster Phyllis George and then became governor of Kentucky. So... Yeah, <laughs> a wild, wild career for that guy. Um, yes. And obviously, you know, earlier in his career, he, he was he was the KFC guy. Um, so yeah, right. Like, yes. Yeah. I didn't even mention that. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like I've I've spent so much time with Jeremiah Brown in this, but uh, oh, in this entire series, I didn't plan to do that. But he's an he just had, did a lot of things. So he's an interesting guy. No, definitely. It, it sounds like uh, when you read it off like that, and just in, you know, and how many, how short a span that was that he did all of that. Um, it's like a kid playing two K, like my GM, and just like flipping franchises like it's yeah. nothing, you know, every I, yeah, other year. And, so. and not even getting into the details of this, the Clipper Celtic swap, which is just a whole other thing, you know. Right. Yeah. And, wow. and, and Tiny Archibald got hurt. Like um, he tore his, his ACL. Like during the, he didn't, he didn't even play for the. Uh, uh, for the Braves because of that. So, and then was traded to the Celtics actually, and then did pretty well with the Celtics. But, you know, he went through a lot through that as well and, and got traded twice by John White Brown. So just, I, I just a lot of random stuff going on during that time. Yeah. And this is, you know, all this is kind of like right in the first few years of free agency, the limited free agency that it was. And that kind of just changed the shape of things in the league too. It's, it's I think adding another element to what's already kind of unstable league with all the you know the franchises being added and franchises moving and you know everything that we've, we've gone through in previous episodes yeah no certainly a, a completely different time than than it is now yes um so anything else you want to get into yeah i mean I just i think just kind of tying together the kernels i mean it it really is an amazing franchise and uh for the nine years that they, that they were in existence they had the most wins of any other aba team regular season wins and second most playoff wins again only that one uh losing season the very first season and I think it's just it's a shame that, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to kind of travel around the country, you know, through different things and go to almost half the league's arenas at this point. And I, one of the things I love to do is I look up at the banners and you see you know, championship banners, you know, retired numbers, all those things. And, you know, some arenas have like you know the trophies out and um, at some point, you know, in the concourse level. And it's a shame that Kentucky didn't even move somewhere else where it's like they didn't become the Clippers or, you know, they didn't become something else or at least you can have some of that history. There's just nowhere you can see it. Um, because it's an impressive history, and it's just a shame that we we don't have that anymore. Because that's you know one of my most fun things about going to new arenas, and and yeah, we just can't even get that. There's nowhere for you know there's no team that's going to play Colonel's highlight packages before the intros. You know, it's just it's just 
done. There's just kind of nowhere for them to go. So that's a real shame um, for a franchise that really kind of deserves that. It's tough when there's no, there's really no place that kind of keeps that legacy alive. That's, that's a hard thing. I mean, there's, there've been books on the kernels and there, there've been other things, uh, obviously websites and things that are, you know, keeping the hip's history alive, but it's different from actually having a vehicle, you know, a team that kind of is able to promote your history. I mean, there's no, obviously there's not a pro team in Kentucky or near Kentucky. So, um, other than the Pacers who, uh, of course were a rival of Kentucky and probably aren't, you know, even if they were interested in promoting that history, it's unlikely they were going to be doing that so um so yeah it's it's just one of those things but yeah i, I i'm glad they're, they're i'm glad we got a good chance to go through their history because i think they're they, they are a fascinating team and you know quite an accomplished team one really one of the more accomplished teams of the 70s you know certainly in in the conversation for one of the you know the the, the most accomplished teams of that decade absolutely yeah no, no question about it all right. Well, thanks, everyone, for checking us out. You can find us at uh, harvardprocessism.com and uh, check out uh, check out Adam's work at basketballpantheon.com. Some great stuff going on there. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. And uh, you can also find us on uh, iTunes and Stitcher if you want to leave us a rating and review. We'd greatly appreciate that. Or wherever you listen to podcasts, you can probably do it there, too. So until next time, we'll be back again soon. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.